0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. I just wanted to take another quick moment to thank you for helping to get the word out about the podcast, creating a ripple effect by telling your friends, sharing on Facebook, however feels right for you to let people know. Also, I wanted to encourage you to check out earlier episodes since the entire show represents a library of how to thrive in relationship. And everything you'll hear represents things that have worked for me personally or that have been really effective for my clients. So take a moment when you're able to look back through and see what you might have missed. Now on to today's episode. How does your biochemistry affect your relationship? Are there ways to foster the inner chemicals of love to keep things feeling fresh and vibrant? Today, we're talking about the big O, oxytocin, and its impact on how we fall into love and keep love going. In other earlier episodes on the show, we've talked about oxytocin and oxytocin versus dopamine, and it seemed like it was time to go straight to the source of much of what we know about how oxytocin works. So, today's guest is Sue Carter, Director of the Kinsey Institute and Rudy Professor of Biology at Indiana University. Sue was the first person to figure out oxytocin's role in how we bond with our partners. So if you hear people talking about this love chemical, they're probably talking about her work or work that's based on her work. We're going to chat about what we know about oxytocin, what we don't know, and how to use the science to help you improve things with your partner. If you'd like a chance to review what we talk about on today's show, please download our detailed show guide at neilsatin.com oxytocin and that's spelled O-X-Y-T-O-C-I-N or you can always text the word PASSION to the number 33444 and follow the instructions which will get you to the page on my website where we have that show guide and links to all the show guides from every episode. A few weeks ago we spoke about the science of safety with Steve Porges, And today we're talking about the science of love. So, Dr. Sue Carter, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today on Relationship Alive.
1: Thank you, Neil. It's my pleasure.
0: I'm wondering if you could take just a moment to to give us the what's the back the background on oxytocin? Why is oxytocin so important? when we're talking about having a successful long-term relationship with a partner?
1: Well, anything that lasts a long time in human behavior has to have a biological or a biochemical basis. Uh, There has to be a mechanism for allowing us to fall in love and a mechanism for keeping us together. And in cases where relationships break up, of mechanism for allowing that to happen as well. The why question that you just asked, why oxytocin is pretty complicated to answer. The, The simple short answer is that it's a mammalian hormone, ancient in its biochemistry, existed before the existence of mammals And it's been reused many times for many purposes. Often the most important things in life, in human life, require oxytocin to be present. Does that help answer your question?
0: Yeah. So when you say the most important things in life, like what?
1: Birth, caring for our offspring, finding a mate creating a social uh, bond with that mate, and many, many direct biological functions such as restoration and healing in the face of a challenge or stress.
0: So why has oxytocin um, come to be known as the the love hormone?
1: The idea that oxytocin is involved in love uh, first began to be discussed about 1970, 1971, uh, by two investigators, a fellow named Peter Klopfer at Duke and a woman named Niles Newton at Northwestern. Both of them made, I think, the correct guess, assumption, that because oxytocin was necessary for human birth or played a major role in the birth process, it must also play a role in the at least attachment between a mother and a child and between a child and a mother. So it was originally a guess. Um, later, late 1970s, a um, psychiatrist, now a psychiatrist named Court Peterson, showed that maternal behavior was being regulated by oxytocin Initially, people literally did not believe him because they thought in the late 1970s, early 80s, they thought that oxytocin did not have a role in brain function, that it was purely a hormone that was playing a role in um, things like birth and lactation, which were muscle-based phenomena. So the idea that the brain was being affected whoops. the idea that the brain was being affected by oxytocin was very new is very new is is that part of the question do you have am i
0: helping yeah so um so the so oxytocin affects our brains and that 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 is even possible is very new and and there was this uh, idea that it was implicated in how we attach to our children. So how does it play in in terms of attaching to our partners?
1: Well, it looks like the same basic biological and neural systems that are necessary for mothers to attach to babies are involved in attachments between two adults. And this was based initially on my own uh, assumption that if a nervous system had a system, it would use it in more than one way. We did many, many experiments and were joined in this activity by a lot of other scientists over time. And basically using an animal model, we can show that if you block the oxytocin receptor, Social bonds do not form. Selective social behavior does not exist.
0: Yeah. So could you talk about that for a moment? Because I know you work a lot with prairie voles. Is that right? Prairie voles? Yes. Prairie voles
1: are the model that allowed me to make the statements that I just made to you because we had to have a rodent model, an animal model that was easily studied in the laboratory, and one with where there was biological validation from nature. So the first discovery, which was really made by my collaborator, Lowell Getz, uh, who was a biologist at the University of Illinois where I was working at that time, um, Lowell found that the prairie voles lived in lifelong pairs, one male, one female, together in a nest. And until one or the other of the partners died, they would always come back to that nest and live together. So he thought that the animals were monogamous. And he asked me to help him under to study this in the laboratory. He was a field biologist. So he was basing this only on capture of animals and letting them go. And then they'd be recaptured. And he found them always living in the same general area and in the same exact nest. So it was a lifelong pair bond. As soon as I learned about that, which was in the late 1970s, I assumed I was already doing a lot of physiological research. I assumed there had to be a physiology to support anything that lasted for a lifetime.
0: And that brought you to oxytocin.
1: It did. And we also, when we started doing laboratory, um, Studies. I was working with a wonderful postdoctoral fellow named Jesse Williams. And Jesse worked for two years to show that the pair bonds were formed by both association, but they were facilitated by mating. So animals that had sex with each other were forming pair bonds more quickly than those that did not. So, and
0: then... You know, I'm wanna, I want to ask this question for the people in my audience who maybe don't get why focusing research on prairie voles. how is that relevant to us as people?
1: Well, we all have the same basic, ancient biological substrates. All mammals have a very similar brain stem. And it turns out that the biology of attachment and pair bonding is in those old parts of the brain. So some of the features would be cortical, neocortical processes, but the basic biology of pair bonding is possible using old neural mechanisms that exist in voles, which are small rodents, as well as humans, which we are large primates. So... We, we all share a similar brain stem.
0: And have you been able to do studies that, that show oxytocin is also at work in the way that humans pair bond?
1: I have not done any human experiments of the kind we do in Vols. There are obviously huge ethical issues associated with either causing a pair bond or breaking one up. It's a very uh, sensitive piece of human behavior, the attachments we form. We know this when our own attachments are either are, are forming and when they're broken. Uh, we, what we can do, and people have begun to do, is use knowledge of the peripheral hormones, such as blood or saliva. And we can show that many of the processes that exist in prairie balls are the same as in humans,
0: yeah, and so this brings us to an interesting place because I totally hear you that you wouldn't you wouldn't want to be experimenting on um putting two people together and then creating a pair bond between them and then um and then breaking it um. And because we have already talked about how a rupture of attachment that's one of the most severe traumas that a that a human can go through um and yet we are um out in the world, we're conducting this experiment all the time in terms of who we choose to pair bond with mm-hmm. um, so I'm curious to know if what your thoughts are on um well, first, let's just talk about what are, what are the behaviors that humans can engage in that we know about that foster oxytocin production?
1: Probably the, the ones that produce low levels of oxytocin release would be simple social behaviors, interacting, uh, being in a place where you feel socially safe. If you want to up the ante and really get a big effect, um, I think it's fair to say that the most reliable way to release oxytocin in humans is sexual behavior and specifically orgasm.
0: Yeah. And is there a way to measure how oxytocin or has anyone measured how oxytocin gets released during um the, the build up phase of of sexual activity versus orgasm and, and then what happens after orgasm?
1: Well the fact is there aren't so many actual experiments, but ones done as early as the nineteen eighties and even some very preliminary N of one, one person kinds of studies done earlier showed that oxytocin in some people does seem to go sort of gradually go up. But another study, about the same time, the effects seem to be more abrupt. And now these were different studies done in different kinds of people. And it's not the case that we have a very complete idea. Your question's a good one. Is it a gradual process or is it is this something that just goes sort of flying upward? Um, we do know that oxytocin can increase extremely dramatically at the time of orgasm. It. I can't give you a solid answer about the time course.
0: Yeah. And this makes me think also about um, in, in humans... Um, we know that oxytocin is produced in um, behaviors that that take place between parents and their children, right?
1: Yes, um, the most the other most dramatic case of release of oxytocin, the one we really do know a lot about is birth. Um, birth is a time period when there is a great deal of stress. But there's also a high level of oxytocin being released. And in that case, it's released in repeated pulses. And that's how you get the contractions that are necessary to eject a very big-headed human baby from a very small cervical opening. So oxytocin under those conditions is powerful. Birth is an amazing process because if you were to describe some to someone from another planet how humans reproduce, they probably wouldn't believe you. It just doesn't make much sense. We have these huge babies. We have to get them. We keep them inside for nine more than nine months, and then we sort of push them out in a very short period of time and with great difficulty oxytocin is right in the center of that story, along with many other chemicals, of course.
0: Right, and for um, women who are having labor-induced, they're using often pitocin, which is artificial oxytocin, is that right? That's right.
1: It's synthetic oxytocin. Pitocin is synthetic oxytocin.
0: So, And then post-birth, what about the behaviors that that happen between mother and child and father and child?
1: Very important, aren't they? If we, all of the human babies, all human babies have to have a caretaker. Someone has to be there. And it appears that oxytocin is part, again, of this need for the baby, that the mother, and depending on the circumstances, the father or other individuals who are present at the birth may become literally attached to the baby at that time. Um, The mother's behavior is timed by her birth and then reinforced, I I think of lactation as kind of of an endocrine insurance policy that was critical for keeping the mother and baby together but at the same time also causing the release of milk. So you have this rather beautifully designed system that allows us to coordinate our behavior with nutrition that the human baby requires. Human babies cannot survive on, they, they can't eat yet. They have to be, they're, they're in a rather, it's usually called a, an altricial state um, not able to take care of themselves, so they have to be fed milk and they have to be nurtured physically, cared for, helped with thermoregulation, in other words, kept warm, all kinds of things. And all of, these, all of these processes that have been studied carefully probably have oxytocin, again, right in the center of the story.
0: So uh, I'm curious to get your take on this because one thing that we've talked about on the show is that a lot of sexual behaviors, um, the ways that we touch each other's bodies are in some ways evocative of how, um, how parents and children interact. And I'm not talking about, um, genital stimulation, obviously, but, um, affectionate touch and maybe even sucking on nipples, things like that, um, and that those would also be stimulating uh, stimulating oxytocin and and encouraging the pair bond between grown-ups.
1: I think that's very likely to be the case. We know that nipple stimulation, uh, the, the human breast has a monosynaptic, meaning only one no no synapses along the way process between the breast and the hypothalamus and the brain so we have a direct route between the breast and the brain and that route is not limited to nursing that's associated with the baby so any kind of breast stimulation has the potential to release oxytocin now oxytocin is a very again, a very clever molecule, so it doesn't just, breast stimulation does not probably always release oxytocin. It's very, very important to have a context, a context that includes other endocrine factors, other molecules like estrogen, um, prolactin perhaps, and it's also important that there not be an excessive amount of stress so the response to consensual sexual interactions is very different than the physiological response to, for example, non-consensual or even rape. Um, so we have a biology, again, that's beautifully tuned to allow us to attach to those that are safe and likely to become Individuals we would have long term relationships with.
0: Got it. And do men also have that direct um, breast to brain or chest to brain connection?
1: Sure. Sure. The neurons are there. The endocrine background is different. And there's probably also, when humans, as in other animals, there's a conditioning piece to the story, kind of a A classical conditioning or learning piece. And so stimulation in one context in a man will have a different, there'll be different sensations, different feelings than in, again, an unsafe context. Now, safety is very relative. It's a very kind of not very easily defined process for a human. The body knows exactly what it what it wants and what it needs, uh, forcing things sometimes won't work. And I, I'm not aware of any real research comparing male and female uh, breast responses. That would be a little difficult to do. It could be done, but I don't. I can't think of anyone who's done it.
0: Sounds like it could be an interesting experiment.
1: Well, maybe. <laughs> But again, remember this context piece is so important. So bringing someone into a laboratory and setting up an artificial situation would be very different than having them with an established partner or someone they've just fallen in love with or whatever. Um, I think we'd find quite different sensations under these different kinds of endocrine and social conditions.
0: That makes sense to me and and we've spoken on the show about how uh, the most important organ for generating connection and sexual turn on is your brain and right. it, it seems like that's what you're talking about it's the that's what's creating the context for it's, what you're experiencing
1: that's correct uh, the brain is what uh, it was Woody Allen's statement is second. Favorite sex organ, I think. Um, <laughs> the The brain is interestingly, since it's the source of most of the oxytocin that's released, it's really even more directly engaged in the process of both falling in love and experiencing a positive, positive forms of sex.
0: So what does that mean in terms of for people in who either want to get into a long-term relationship or who are nurturing a long-term relationship? Um, how, how, how is, does that impact them? That's
1: a good question, isn't it? So, um, well, first this context piece is so critical. Okay. So if, if a person is socially inappropriate, all, no matter how, well trained they are in sort of technology of sex it may not have the desired outcome so if you're trying to form a relationship with somebody and you've got a great sex manual and you look and it says touch here or or suckle this or whatever (laughs) um there's no assurance that's going to work because this is a a two-partner story um and the other person may be having a very different experience than you are. So how exactly we define that is a little out of my field as a biologist, but as a human, I would think that what you want to do is read the social cues of others if you're forming new relationships. Understand what their both their verbal language is, but also their body language So if someone jumps back, recoils at touch, seems frightened, this is not an invitation to move forward. This is an invitation to slow down, take your time, think what the, uh, try to put yourself into the other person's experience. Um, The same applies to nurturing long-term relationships. Relationships are constantly changing. And you've got the complexity of two people to worry about. I think it's. It, I think people forget this, especially in the age of sort of internet sex, where only part of the cues are present. So we don't have. Um, if people are meeting initially through some kind of media, they don't have that full range of information. And they may be very disappointed when they meet in person, not just by what the other person looks like, but how they behave, how their nonverbal behaviors exist, how they are expressed, I mean.
0: Right. And I think that's a very common experience for people who are in the the online dating world is someone seems perfect, their picture is attractive, the way they write to you is... It's amazing, and and you think you're developing this great connection, and then you meet for coffee, and whoa, like that's <laughs> yeah. actually completely different than what you were expecting.
1: yeah, and, and as it would be expected to be, because this social, physical, social component is so critical to our nervous system's decision making. My husband calls this neuroception, Dr. Porges calls this neuroception, um, and it's cues that are often really almost subconscious um, that we key off of, and they're very quick. They're subtle cues like a micro um, a a touch that's inappropriate for women especially, inappropriate touch is too early, too um, uninvited, can be a very big turnoff. So someone reads their sex manual again, it says, oh, women like to be touched in the following way. Well, if you do that inappropriately, that'll probably be the end of that relationship.
0: Yeah, I'll take this moment to refer our listeners to the episode with Sherry Winston, where she talks about differences between um, male and female arousal and, um, and in particular, just given what you just said, that question of, of um, how you touch um, is, and, and where, um, cause she discusses starting really at the periphery of where, where our bodies begin. Um, and, and it strikes me just in hearing that, that that is also creating a context of safety
1: Yes, yes, that's it. If you think about safety, if you don't have all of this sort of academic uh, surround to your ability to think about your interactions with other people, just thinking about whether the other person feels safe or not is going to be critical.
0: Yeah, yeah, and uh, I like how you just let that slide, that that because um, I didn't mention it earlier, but that Steve Porges is your husband. So, talk about um, a couple that are collectively changing the face of how we think about human behavior and 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 how we respond in the world. So um, it's pretty pretty amazing um, your work together. Really appreciate that. Thank you. Um, what what do you think about ways for people in long term partnership of nurturing oxytocin as a way of nurturing their, their bondedness to each other? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, that it's a little more complicated than perhaps we would like. In other words, the easy answer is again, to think about what makes the other pe- person feel safe, what makes them feel nurtured, what makes them feel secure. And that's fundamental. But we all know that that Humans get bored with other people. They need excitement in their lives, and that excitement can be nothing more than a good conversation or it can be doing things together. So I would think if, if you really want to up the ante again, up the gain on this system, make it more potent, um, one way is to do things together that you find both, that, that you both find mutually exciting and interesting. Um, It's not enough to just feel safe. There has to be on top of that secure base, there has to be something that makes the relationship dynamic and interesting. It might be taking dance lessons together. It might be a roller coaster. Any number of things where you in some mutual sense, have enjoyment as well as a feeling of attachment developing or being reinforced, secured.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, um, we, we frame that conversation often in terms of needs so that we have this need for certainty and to sort of have that safety and security with your partner, but that our, our nervous, our very nervous system craves growth and v- stimulation and variety. So um, it's very easy to look at a relationship that has too much variety um, and not enough safety and see like why they're having problems and vice versa. It's easy to look at a relationship that has too much safety and not enough variety and see why they might be getting tired with each other.
1: Mm -hmm. A friend of mine, um, nobody I know very well, so they will not be traced back by this conversation (laughs) as a, a, a decent relationship with a, a, a partner, the a male-female partner, but he would like a threesome. And she asked me, what did I think of that? And I said, well, you're, you're the one that needs to answer that question, um, but if you're not comfortable, and she said she wasn't, I said, it's not going to help your relationship. Even if he has a wonderful time, it's probably not the best thing for the two of you to do. For me personally, it would be frightening and potentially disgusting, but that's my, my point of view and other people have different, different experiences and different, you know, different ways of looking at the world, but the lack of safety perhaps, and this may be more of a female thing than a male thing, uh, really matters. And if the relationship or the the attempt to stimulate the relationship goes beyond either partner's bounds, then it may take a while to get it back or may be ruptured for good.
0: Yeah. And and this is interesting. um, And I don't I'm not sure how much you're going to be able to speak to this, but um, another neurochemical that we've talked a bit about on the show is dopamine and and the the way that dopamine is tied into our reward circuitry and that very same circuitry that comes into play in when we get addicted to something or habituated to something and need to up the ante in order to to create more feelings of of satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Um I'm oversimplifying here, but um the way that it's come up on the show, and and I I mentioned this to you in emails um, beforehand, is this idea that um, if you get you could get trapped on that seeking reward mechanism style of sexuality, where it becomes about always up in the ante, always trying to create something new and different. Um, just to keep things exciting, and that it's related to this chemistry of habituation. And I'm wondering if you can speak to that at all, into how maybe dopamine and oxytocin are working together and maybe working against each other as well.
1: Yeah, well, dopamine's a complex molecule like oxytocin with many functions, it again probably works best within a sort of biologically um, safe range. If you get too much, let's say through use of something like amphetamines, um, this is unfortunately a very, very good way to sort of blow out the system. Oxytocin we don't know so much about, but the catecholamines of which dopamine is the best, best studied example Uh, probably you can basically overdo that, overstimulate that system. I am not an expert, but I think it comes to a point when it it can't keep up with the demand, and you may then get the opposite of the desired pleasurable effects. You may get depression and feelings of of sort of being down. Um, So when we... Effect, when we deliberately try to manipulate excitement, we always run a risk, whether it's with drugs or with behavior that will over overdo it, that our nervous system, our individual differences are quite great here, but our nervous system simply won't be able to continue to produce the hormone, or in this case, the neurotransmitter, dopamine. The other background which we know less about is that there are many, many chemicals here. Uh, Cannabinoids, in other words, the the molecules that are involved in marijuana use. Opioids, which are affected by uh, drugs like heroin. All of these drugs are part of the sexual experience. All of them have sort of natural ranges where they work very well and situations in which you can either get too much or deplete the system. And our biology has to stay in something like a homeostatic range just to keep us alive. So we have the short-term effects of too much stimulation, which could, for example, stop your heart or in some other way cause damage. And then the long-term effects, especially of using drugs, are that they usually deplete the system. Usually, if you put in a molecule, something like an amphetamine that acts on the dopamine system, then the natural system down regulates. And this is inevitably going to create trouble over time. So the short term may feel good, but the long term is pretty disastrous. And people then either behaviorally or again, pharmaceutically try to restore that system even back to normal, but the system is disrupted in some cases for forever, but even when it's not long-lasting, it's it can be very painful for a human body to sort of bring itself back to normal, and I assume this applies to extreme sex behaviors as well. I don't know if anyone studied it or not, but I, I can't imagine it wouldn't.
0: Yeah, I think there has been some study around that as it pertains to porn use and um, people using porn to chronically overstimulate their system, and um, and I think I, I want to provide a translation here. When you say that that causes the body to downregulate, um, my understanding is that that means that our um, actual receptors for dopamine turn off so that um, so that we actually in, a, in our natural state um, aren't aren't potentially getting enough dopamine to feel good and normal um, and you'd have to go through some sort of recovery process to right. allow your your body to rebuild its receptivity to dopamine did I get that right?
1: I'm not an expert on the dopaminergic systems, but specifically, but every system that I know of has this ability to adjust both the receptor and the hormone production. So, or drug, you know, neurotransmitter production. So the body is, again, it's trying to stay in something like a a biologically, uh, what's the word I want, a kind of healthy state. And if we drive it out of that state by uh, extreme behavior or extreme use of drugs, we then have to pay the price later of the system coming back into, into register, back into its sort of own normal state. And again, I'm not, an, also I'm not at all an expert on addiction, but I I think as we understand the addictive processes better, we're going to find there are many players, many biochemical players, many neural systems involved, and there probably are ways to speed up recovery, but at the moment, most people have, are going through the, the recovery process using their own biology to repair it so that drugs to repair addiction aren't are not necessarily very effective, um, but the nice thing, the good thing about this is that sometimes you can substitute. Let's say, let's say your addiction is food. Okay, um, you may be able to substitute social behavior and social interactions for a kind of addictive eating behavior, and so we can find healthier substitutes, exercise for some people's also, again, you can overdo that too, but um, exercise is something that gives you some of the same processes without necessarily as much of a downside as, let's say, eating or certainly drug addiction. But um, again, I can't speak to the porn question. I've heard people discuss it from various points of view and someone I heard talk recently was arguing that there's really very little evidence for porn addiction. I'm, I don't know if that's true or not. I can't say, uh, but it's, it is an important question because the human body is very tuned to social and sexual stimuli and, you know, we, we need to understand this better.
0: Yeah. And, um, Gary Wilson's work, and he's not a researcher; he's more of a a synthesizer of research. But he wrote a book called *Your Brain on Porn* that is a pretty compelling argument that that uh, pornography and sex addiction do exist and have biological components that you know that are. um, And he he does a pretty good job, I think, of um, refuting people who claim that, that, that that's not possible or or not true. So, you know, outside of the, go ahead. I'd
1: say I'm not an expert and I would want to see the research before I sort of made an evaluation, especially if the work is being synthesized by someone who doesn't know all the ins and outs of how the original data were collected, then we, we'd want to You know, I I think it's something we need to think about and not make a snap judgment either direction about what's right or wrong.
0: True, and it's easy, um, particularly if people are caught up in more moral questions to have their judgment clouded, perhaps.
1: Well, I don't, again, that's way out of my (laughs) realm of expertise, but, but morality does in the body translate into feelings of what's, write what you know what feels good and this this whole issue it, again it's very messy context and understanding things in the context not just of what's going on at the moment but of our whole lives so an experience in early life can t- totally change the way we then experience something 40 50 years later so mm-hmm. we are we are pretty complicated organisms, but that's the good news because that also means we can be repaired. We can be restored.
0: Well, that is a, a statement of hope for sure. Um, I'm maybe we can can close on one more question around um, around oxytocin and. Um, I, well, actually, I have two questions. So the first is, is there a feeling or a, a way, a, like a state of being that we can associate with like how we know it's sort of like the calling card of oxytocin doing its work in our system? Do we know anything about that?
1: Well, that's also a very, very interesting question, isn't it? Um, oxytocin is under natural conditions, would not work alone. It's always against a background of steroid hormones, against a background of dopamine and norepinephrine. And so by itself, when people are given oxytocin, for the most part, they cannot tell you whether they've received it or not. So there have actually been several studies where they were studying the consequences, for example, for social behavior and they did a double-blind controlled study, and the person did not know if they were receiving oxytocin or not. And a person without a primed uterus would not experience uterine contraction, so they can't tell that way. And the brain itself does not seem to constantly be monitoring oxytocin the way it does, for example, dopamine. But that said, there are fairly dramatic behavioral changes that can occur in people given additional oxytocin. So, and they may not have a, a really strong ability to put into words what those experiences are. And, and I think one of the reasons is just that we're using such old parts of the brain that they were that were really, that evolved, that that originated before the modern cortex and before language. And so we actually can't very easily answer that question. I've seen people writing about this in non-controlled ways, so they knew they were taking oxytocin. They would say, oh, it was wonderful. But actually, the, when you do a controlled study, most people can't tell whether and, they've had it or not,
0: and when you say that the effect of oxytocin changes based on the 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 background of what other neurochemicals are happening, mm-hmm. um, can you can you describe what that means? Like, how would it look with one category of well, um, chemicals uh, versus another?
1: In the animal research that's been done, there were a number of studies initially and since that have shown no effect of oxytocin. But generally, this is a big generalization, those are studies that are done in a very safe context where perhaps the hormone wasn't needed. If you study maternal behavior, for example, and you give a little extra oxytocin to see if you can make a female more maternal, if she's under stress, she'll actually show more response to the oxytocin than if she's not. And that was shown years ago by a scientist named uh, Israel Liberson. What Israel showed was that the that stress hormones upregulate very, very quickly the oxytocin receptor. So one possibility is that this is a hormone that we our body has a way of making itself more sensitive to it when we need it. Now, if you want me to put that back in a human context, imagine that you're under some terrible disaster, an earthquake, a a tidal wave, and you then, the emergency passes, and you find yourself more social than you were before. This happened after 9-11. People started, people were actually engaged in social interactions with neighbors they had never met even though they might have been living 20 years in an apartment, they suddenly went next door and said, how are you? Because I think that social system is upregulated. The one that allows oxytocin to make us feel safe, and it does, it's sort of a circle, so it works differently when we feel safe, but it has some capacity under certain conditions, not every condition, certain conditions to make us feel less frightened less fearful and more social
0: so in general um our sweeping generalization is that in relationship in the container of safety then if you're well if you're feeling too safe maybe oxytocin isn't going to make a difference for you one way or another that's
1: possible. That's possible yes and, but if you need it or you have a condition, let's say an individual who who's somewhat asocial may find this hormone helps them. Mm. I'm not recommending the use of it, by the way. Let me make that very clear. Um, I think that oxytocin is probably acting like other molecules in the body. And we have some animal research that shows this. So it can downregulate its own receptor if given in large amounts or for too long. In fact, that's probably why when the body produces it, it normally produces it as a pulse. Mm. So that it's only working in a very quick, brief way and not down-regulating its own receptor and turning off the ability to respond to it. But the, the safety thing is, is just, it, safety is a very useful concept to work with. But as I've mentioned, safety is not all that we seek in life. We seek excitement. We seek novelty. And our body is designed to do that. And oxytocin may be part of both the seeking or the capacity for not fearing the strange, not being afraid of novel experiences that allows us to make new relationships. Otherwise, you know, if, you were, if everything were just about keeping everything the same, if life was about that, then there would be no change. There would be no new partners. There might not be any partners at all. It would just be too much work. <laughs> so, so we have to be, we ha- our bodies are supported by these hormonal changes and this is one of the reasons I'm not um, myself very big on, on suggesting that people look for ways to get biochemical help here. I think it's more important to understand behavior and to work with the natural molecules because those are almost always working right when if we, when if we start to improve on nature, we almost always get it wrong.
0: Mhm. Yeah. Yeah, one way of of natural biohacking that we've talked about on the show uh, that I mentioned earlier is actually non-orgasmic sex. Um with the idea being that you're engaging in everything that's fostering oxytocin, fostering all the feel good pair bonding chemicals but without the crash of orgasm. Well, you'd obviously you'd get like the big influx of oxytocin which is Probably why a lot of us pair bond inappropriately um, after sexual encounters, but um, but then there's also the crash that comes after orgasm, and um, and that crash can be um, can make you get on that cycle of of dopamine and needing more sex and needing another orgasm and um, and habituating you to your partner. Whereas if you have no orgasm, you have no habituation.
1: What's an interesting idea. I'm not sure if the biology will support that being the only or the best way to have these things happen. Um, that most likely, you're right that that social interactions, sort of le- something less than orgasm or birth, are in and of themselves very positive. But I'm not sure that about your notion that sex is causing then a crash I think that might be a bit bit extreme I I'd have to I'd have to see the research before I took that notion as, uh, as fact
0: well I appreciate your rigor and holding me to it um, and uh, hopefully there will be more research about that that very topic um, and on that note before we go um, as I mentioned in the introduction you're the director of the Kinsey Institute which um, is known all over the world as the place where sex is being studied. And I'm curious if you could give us a sense of of the direction of the Institute right now and what, what work is happening at Kinsey.
1: Well, we're, of course, extending from what I think was a very solid base in research, starting with the descriptive work of Kinsey himself, of Alfred Kinsey, and then followed by some amazing directors of the institute who built, along with many other people, other places, of course, who built a a kind of foundation for understanding of sexuality. Um, At this point, because of my own interests and because I think this is important to humans, I believe we really have to get into this concept of context. It's messy, it's complicated, but when we begin to understand it, we make better judgments. Uh, humans have a rational component to their behavior. They can avoid some kinds of trouble. Um, and I think knowing, I, I think our goal here is a, lo- a lot of it is real knowledge that we can use in a day-to-day way uh, of the initiatives that we're working on. I'm particularly interested in two things besides going beyond my own work, which deals with oxytocin. I'm interested in sexual assault and trauma and how we can help people after the fact, if not before, uh, make those less devastating and less of a, a true trauma. So sex should be good when it's not. It can cause problems. How can we repair those? And a lot of that has to do with the work that Steve Porges has done on understanding what trauma is, how the body masters it. Um, The second area I'm extremely interested in, somewhat related, are the things that go on in medicine that are, are rather commonplace, but not well studied. For example, the effects of surgeries that interrupt the nerves to the Uh, organs like the prostate or the uterus. The intent in removing a prostate or a uterus is usually to get rid of a tissue that's got some kind of problem, cancer or bleeding or hypertrophy. But the effect includes interrupting the the nerve supply to the tissues that innervate the sex organs and sexual responses are regulated by them. So I think where I think in the future we'll look back on this time and say I can't believe we did this to people, but we need to start the work right now to understand what are the sexual consequences of medical interventions. Some as simple as a diagnosis. Diagnosis can cause a person's sex life to sort of spiral downward from fear, from lack of a sense of understanding. And so we're we're all about knowledge. We're about trying to promote knowledge of things that might otherwise not be studied.
0: Well, it sounds like very important work, and I I really appreciate your your leadership um, on both of those topics. In fact, my uh, my partner and I are working on a book for partners who are working on recovering from one or the other being affected by sexual trauma, and um, and so that in particular is a topic that's very important to us as well as thinking of how you actually prevent that from happening in the first place so uh, i look Correct. forward to your work and and um, staying in touch about it
1: thank you thank you neil i've enjoyed thank talking you so
0: to much you. sue really appreciate your time today thank you for listening to another episode of relationship alive if you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive Community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word passion, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.